This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a Small Town. So this week's episode is a Kate episode. Hey Kate, love you Kate. (laughs) Thank you for your suggestion. It's a very good one. Um, And I'm going to go ahead and credit, um, there's a podcast by True Crime Garage and it was phenomenal. I got a lot of in the weeds details that I had a hard time finding elsewhere so right and yeah we both kind of went down a rabbit hole I went into some of the rabbit hole on missing people and like all the different things out there that are trying to help law enforcement and what have you Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's interesting and that this is one of those there was a missing person and then another missing person so the first one kind of sort of fell off the radar yeah though the police say yeah we just don't have enough um, resources, which is valid, right? Totally valid, and um, but yeah. Well, and the other one kind of got big news just because the person involved was very mm. charismatic in yeah. some ways, and kind of um, well, and he put on a show for people. He did, <laughs> so yeah. It and makes sense when we talk about it. You will probably know Y'all this other case. Know this other case. <laughs> so this is the case that got kind of um lost yes and, and um the person is still missing yes so and this is our first missing persons case too right which is yeah and it's definitely Pre- interesting presumed so. dead and presumed murdered yeah but it is definitely a missing persons case yes so it takes place in um, so she was born in Libertyville, which has 20,000 people, and then they was, lived in Plainfield, Illinois, which is about 43,000 people. So still pretty small, of yeah. course, both considered cities. <laughs> well, you know. I give up on this whole, what is a city, what is a town? Yeah. It's not like German where there's a burg or a, <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah. So, Lisa Ruttenberg was born May 19th, 1969. She went to Libertyville High School in Libertyville, Illinois. She was on the dance and swim teams. She graduated from high school in 1987. From there, she attended Southern Illinois University before... before switching to Kendall University. She received a degree in hotel and restaurant management. She worked at hotels in Lincolnshire and Northbrook. Yeah, sorry, I'm a Saluki. Oh. I didn't know if you knew that. I did not know that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Lisa met Craig Stebbick at a party on April 6th, 1993, and... No, that's when they oh, eloped. That's when they eloped. I'm sorry. She met him at a party, and then, then they eloped. They eloped. So in they Jamaica. in Jamaica. Yes. Uh, Craig Stebick was born on December of 1966. He went to Highland Park High School in Highland Park, Illinois. At the time that they got together, Craig was working as a PI. Mm, private investigator uh-huh. and this is these are suburbs of chicago outer once you get to plainfield you're getting closer to like DeKalb and what have you yeah um the couple had a daughter alexis who was born in 1995 about a year later they had a son named zachary around 2001 the family moved to plainfield illinois Craig was working as a pipe fitter for Diode Corporation. They had moved to Plainfield for his job. In March 2006, Lisa had taken a job as a custodian working nights. She only held that job for about a year. One source stated that Craig did not like her working this job, but I couldn't really find any... Yeah, nothing to back it up. Yeah. 
Um, the couple had filed for divorce twice. The first time was before the birth of their daughter, um, and Lisa ended up calling that divorce off, probably because, you know, they're about to have a baby, so... Right. I mean, that's... I've never been in this situation. However, I can definitely empathize with the, you're not the breadwinner, Mm -hmm. and what are you going to do with this baby on your own? Right. So any woman that leaves her husband while pregnant, wow, that's some cojones. Yeah. Um, The second time the papers were filed was in December 2006 or January 2007. Uh, Craig sought joint company custody of the children with Lisa as the primary custodian and that neither party needed to support each other. Lisa sought joint custody with her being the primary custodian and she sought support and maintenance payments. Which make complete sense because as you'll find out soon he was definitely the breadwinner of the two of them. Uh, Lisa was working at Sodexo, uh, we've heard of them, as yes. a lunch lady at Lincoln Elementary School. She was earning less than 10000 a year. They were living together, but had separate lives. Um, those close to them said they were barely speaking. Craig was using the master bedroom, and Lisa was sleeping on the couch. And I'm just going to say, this was odd to me. Um, to me, it points out the power dynamic between the two of them. yeah. But especially because she was, basically it had already been decided she was going to get the house in the divorce. Yeah. So him sleeping, I don't know. It just. It's the power dy- dynamic. He yeah. He totally held the power in their relationship. He definitely did. Um, I know this is speculation, but I'm sorry. I'm reading this. I read through everything that, that Missy put together on this. And that's where I come up with my little facts that I've got in here. And I'm going, oh yeah, power dynamic. Power yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Yep. He holds the power and she can't have it. Right. Um, supposedly, Lisa had dated someone, a 45-year-old divorcee, not serious and not sure they were actually dating or just, you know, talking. Um, and especially when you're going through a divorce, I think hearing somebody else who's gone through, through a it, divorce, yeah. you know, it, it probably, it sounds like whatever it was, it wasn't serious. It wasn't it wasn't an actual like romantic relationship or if it was heading that direction it hadn't gotten there yet. right uh lisa was hanging out a lot with a friend from work her name was ruby she would go to ruby's house for wine and girl talk and sometimes she would bring the kids along craig did not appear to be dating anyone um the house was mortgaged for more than it was worth craig- back in 2007 yeah, yeah that's the housing bubble right uh, Craig was making around 80000 a year. Lisa, again, was making less than 1000 a month. So the whole thing, it's very telling that he put in his divorce papers that he they don't need to support each other. You're right. like, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> in order to maintain the, the level of uh, security, safety, and living that you were while you were married, though living on sleeping on the couch, well, she was okay with it. I kind of doubt it, but she didn't want to fight it. Yeah. That's where my brain goes. But yeah, no. So April 30th, 2007, Lisa went to work as usual, and she left work around 2.30 p.m. She was seen at Jimmy John's after this time picking up a sandwich. She ran a few errands, and then at 3.30 p.m., she picked up their son from school. Although this fact has never been confirmed, no reports that anybody saw her. At 5.30 p.m., Craig arrived home from work. This also has not been confirmed. It's just the timeline that he gave the police. Correct. Yes. At 5.45 p.m., Craig sends the kids to ride bikes to a store for some candy. Craig goes to the backyard to work on the lawn. Lisa is inside the house. At 6 p.m., Craig goes back into the house and Lisa is gone. She takes her purse, her phone, and her keys, but leaves on foot. Sometime after 6, the kids come back, and Craig takes them to Target. The next morning, Craig calls Lisa's work to see if she is there. He then calls the neighbors to see if they have seen her. The neighbors call the police. Lisa has vanished. Lisa was 5'2", 120 pounds, brown hair, has a butterfly tattoo on her lower back with her kids' names, a rose on her ankle, and a pink heart on her belly. They also... 
She yeah. also has a linear scar on her lower abdomen. She was 37 at the time she disappeared. She would be 52 now if alive. Lisa told the neighbors that if she ever goes missing, tell the police. Hence they called them and he did not. Mm-hmm. Lisa's friend Ruby told police and newspapers that Lisa said on numerous occasions that if she ever went missing to look at at Craig. Lisa told Ruby that Craig had repeatedly told Lisa that he would get rid of her and she would never be found. And of course, why wouldn't she believe him? He'd mm-hmm. worked as a PI for a while and you would, whether or not he talked about his job, just that whole idea of somebody being a private investigator, you know where people put things right. and where not to put things because that's the stuff that's found. Right. Friends and family say that she would never leave her children. And really, how many? Not that many moms would. No. So, backtracking a little. The first report dated back to October 8th, 1995, when Craig and his father were arrested for possible illegal hunting. There was fresh blood on Craig's truck, but there were no animals found. Police at the time believed that the animals were hidden in one of the hundreds of mining pits in Iron County, Michigan. Craig was charged with two felony counts of unlawful use of a weapon after he was stopped just after 9 a.m. about a thousand yards from a school. Police recovered a 10-gauge double-barrel shotgun, a 44 Magnum pistol, a Ruger, and an AK-47 semi-automatic assault rifle from Craig's Toyota pickup. I can't think of why you would use any of those to hunt animals. Yeah, I don't know. The shotgun, maybe, but um, sorry. Uh, <laughs> do you know how inaccurate AK-47s are? <laughs> you get people because you just put a plethora of bullets that way. Sorry. <laughs> he was also charged with four misdemeanor counts of unlawful use of a weapon operating operating an unsafe motor vehicle and driving while his license was revoked. Awesome. Reports state that Craig was arrested two more times in Iron County, once in 1994 after he was caught with two undersized bass and in 2004 for using someone else's kill tag, kill to tag. Yeah, getting, you get, you have to buy the, the, um, license to go hunt. And so he used their kill tag to tag an animal themselves. Got it. Okay. Uh, He paid $80 and $189 in fines, respectively. Police in Iron County believe that Craig had been involved in poaching in Illinois as well, but there was never any evidence uncovered to build a case against him. Family members own a large piece of property in Michigan where Craig would sometimes go hunting. During the time of the divorce, Lisa had been focused on her health. She was working out a lot. She had made an internet posting on April 11th looking for female friends only to join her in exercise. Her goals were to increase her cardio, meet new people, and have fun. She wanted to include her kids in her health journey to get out and enjoy nature. Lisa was going to counseling at a woman's center, guardian angel, but no way to confirm that. Right. They're not going to say whether she was or not out of safety. Right. Um, Craig had a lot of guns. Not sure if his prior felonies were dropped or what, but in Illinois, a person convicted of a felony crime is not able to obtain a firearms owner identification FOID card and cannot buy or own own a gun. Without a FOID, it is a criminal offense to possess a gun, even in your own home. Handgun licenses from other states are not recognized by Illinois law either. A person can file a petition to receive a FOID card with a felony, but it's a process. Yeah, I have a little insight into this. And I just keep going back and forth on again, he was a PI, so he had to have um, petitioned to um get his pi license having had felonies too yeah so um it just so happens um we have a mutual friend from our hometown that uh you know the internet didn't really exist that much when we were younger (laughs) and uh, several years back 
uh, I reconnected with a couple of our, well, we both have done this yeah. over time. We reconnect with our friends back home. A lot of you guys do this too. And um, one of them, you know, a really good friend, uh, that person and their spouse came out to visit here and they stayed with us. And that person had had um, a, a felony from uh, driving with a revoked license. And it was just one of those things. A lot of people hunt where we're from. A lot of them hunt and actually eat the meat and what have you. So um, they had asked me if I would write um, just a a personal letter to be part of a package Mm -hmm. to put forth to get their FOID back. Because it was a nonviolent crime. Mm -hmm. And um, basically, where we live in Illinois, if you don't have a license chances are you aren't walking to work and that's pretty much most of the united states unless you live in a big city there's just not a good alternative for most people to get to work and that was they they got uh caught for um not having driving without a license because they were driving back and forth to work because they couldn't afford not to work right this it's one of those those things that goes in cycles we can talk all day about how certain you know uh I'm a law-abiding citizen, but I look at certain things. Um, I recognize my privileges that I have, and I've never been in that position. Yeah. And if I were to lose my license tomorrow, I have alternative ways to get to work. Not everybody has that luxury. Right. Anyhow, um, this rolls into the first fact I have for the day. <laughs> the Illinois FOID card. Felons can eventually reobtain their FOID. Um, the, I went on IllinoisLegalAid.org. I actually found a, a particular um, article first that I, I ended up not using for this, but there was an article about a specific person that um, lobbied to get their FOID card back. And it actually um, was part of the piece of case law that is changing how FOID is readdressed later. Because right now there's, um, I'll just go into this a little bit. So there are convictions that lead to automatic denial. Um, You can't get a FOID card if you have on your record any kind of forcible felony conviction within 20 years of your new application. And certain types of felony drug convictions, though that may change when we start talking about, I'm, I'm sure, many places with the legalization of marijuana. Um, other things, any conviction within the last five years for battery or assault with a firearm, which to me sounds like, I don't know, that sounds like it's uh, <laughs> forcible, but hey, what do I know? <laughs> Again, this is legalese and Illinois is going to have its own legalese. But a juvenile adjudication where there's a forcible felony equivalent or any misdemeanor if you're under 21. Um, So you wouldn't be able to apply until after you're 21 if you had a misdemeanor if you're under 21. A forcible felony is one where the person used force or threatened to use force, for example, armed robbery. Um, You can't get a card if you're subject to an order of protection. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. That prohibits having guns, and this includes if you violate an order of protection using guns, the police may suspend your FOID card if the order is less than a year. So there are many other reasons that you may not be able to get a FOID card. People who have uh, drug ad- addiction can't get a card. Neither can people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. I actually went through and read the the, the full length, and I didn't include it because we'd be here forever. Um, section 10 that discusses all the all the different variations because there are people you have to make a determination about how bad an intellectual disability is Mm. if you're functioning there's certain levels of functionality that they can still get a FOID card because you can be not a genius and have a FOID card (laughs) (laughs) there's no requirement to be Mensa here Um, Your application may be denied if you have a low-level felony conviction, for example, a felony class 4 conviction for possession of controlled substance, so there Mm. again with the drug abuse. If your application is denied, you'll see a letter from the director of the Illinois State Police that explains what you need to do to appeal the denial. And this is where I'm going into that case from this past year. I uh, I think it was within a year of now. Currently, the director of the Illinois State Police makes the determination on an, for an appeal. It's now going to be a board. Oh. So I guess they decided that um, maybe they weren't being, uh, they weren't assessing it equally across the playing field. Hmm. 
eh, I don't know. Uh, it wasn't truly clear in that article, and that's why I didn't end up using it. It was just clear. They, they really talked about the case that overturned this, mm. not what, um, why they decided that a board would be better. But anyhow, so some denials can be appealed to the director of the Illinois State of Police. Denials are that were based on a serious felony can be appealed in the circuit court. Neither the director nor a judge can grant a FOID if it is prohibited by federal law. So if you have something that's on a federal level, sorry, don't bother with Illinois. Um, the right to keep and bear arms in Illinois is a civil right. Your application should not be denied once your civil rights have been restored. So basically, if you get anything overturned, what have you. So if you've not committed a forcible felony in the last 20 years, all those different um, things. If you're not likely to endanger public safety, you will probably get your um, request granted as long as it's not contrary to public interest. So this was the the section 10 that's I included some snippets from it. That's it's very yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, so um, this is where I'm just basically going into I couldn't find anything in particular about hunting in specific because I think that really is one of those cases that's covered by um that right to bear arms to feed mm -hmm. your family all that fun stuff because there's just a lot of stuff going on right here yeah um so i'm just gonna kind of push past some of this that i was <laughs> writing so um the basics being that as of um one january 2023 there will be this board in place rather than the director of this illinois state of police the board i thought it was interesting how they came up with this board it shall consist of seven members appointed by the governor with the advice and consent of the Senate, Illinois Senate, with three members residing in the first judicial district, which is where Chicago is, one member residing in each of the four remaining judicial districts. So they basically are trying to make sure that they are people that are belong to all the districts across the state, hmm. not just, in, I don't know if you hear a lot uh, around here, People down in Richmond and further south in Virginia and in the foothills, they complain about everything for Virginia is going to be about the Beltway, Virginia. And you're like, yeah, no, you need to have some some people on this panel that are from the rest of the state because mm -hmm. not all of Illinois is Chicago. That is very true. There you go. No more than four members shall reside in the same political political party. The governor shall designate one member as the chairperson. So one member will have to have at least five years of service as a federal or state judge, one member with at least five years of experience serving as an attorney with the United States Department of Justice or as a state's attorney or assistant state's attorney, one member with at least five years of experience serving as a state or federal public defender or assistant public defender, and three members with at least five years of experience as a federal, state, or local law enforcement agency, agent or as an employee with investigative experience or duties related to criminal justice under the United States Department of Justice, DEA, uh, Department of Homeland Security, FBI, or state or local law enforcement agency, and one member with at least five years of experience as a licensed physician hmm. or a clinical psychologist to deal with the, the issues that arise with regard to mental competency. So, I mean, I think it sounds like Illinois has made, yeah. th this sounds like a pretty substantial way to move forward with this whole, whether or not somebody can have a FOID card. And one thing I couldn't find anywhere is whether or not he had a FOID card. Yeah. Did you? I did not. I, I mean, I'm assuming because it sounds like he got his guns back that yeah. I don't, I he think he must have had, have had yeah. one. And I do just, know that, like, I guess his brother was living with him after Lisa disappeared and he had a felony conviction and they were saying that um, he it couldn't was, be in the same house. Yeah, it was okay for him to be in the same house. He just couldn't handle the guns. The guns had to right. be locked away. Okay. Yeah, so okay. it's, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's different because you do wonder about that. That's mm -hmm. that part of it. He had a lot of guns and you know what? There are plenty of people who do. Yeah. There are people who collect weapons. Um, my husband and I have a couple, um, yeah, there are people who hunt and of course they're going to have hunting weapons. And the only thing in that one group, I'm like, I can't think of hunting with a, well, with a handgun. 
just so blows the thing my mind. That kind of <laughs> gets to me with him and the whole gun thing is they were financially struggling. So having that many guns when you're financially having issues. Mm. Well, especially if he was continuing to collect them. Yeah. And why didn't he sell some off if they were having financial exactly. problems? I mean, it's like we were talking about before. It's like it's it's like getting a tattoo when you have no money to pay, pay the for bills. It. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And yeah, because I, I did want to make sure about the Floyd thing, because I, um, again, I had the experience of the one, they basically wanted to have a handful of people. I don't know if that friend ended up getting their Floyd card. It just didn't come up in conversation later, because it just didn't. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, there's a process for it. So he probably he must have had one for them to leave them in the house. Yeah, I, I believe or so. Or give them back anyway. So, May of 2007, police were called to the house for a nonviolent verbal fight, um, and Craig had been the one to call the police. Supposedly, Lisa was, was drunk, and he had locked her out. After Lisa disappeared, the park across the street and the area behind their house was searched. Their house was a nice house in a nice neighborhood. It had a six-foot privacy fence and a pool in the backyard, and I will say I looked at photos of the house online because mm-hmm. it had been sold not that t- not, not that, that long, long ago. ago and uh it was a nice house it was oh, a yeah. big house um and i was a little surprised because the basement it looked like had been finished and had a guest bathroom guest bedroom guest bathroom put in so that might have been done after because otherwise why wasn't she staying in exactly it? that was my question it's <laughs> <laughs> like what why right? is she sleeping on the couch when there's a whole separate master suite in the basement and mm. did she say she was sleeping on the couch or did he it's just yeah. i don't know there's some stuff i i just we both obviously can't get over that part yeah <laughs> that 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 sticks with you. Um, Craig wi- willingly gave police uh, the family PC, but he would not consent to a polygraph and tried his best to exclude his children from the investigation. Um, questions I have is: Was there another PC, or does like Craig's a laptop experience or- as a PI allowed him to hide his tracks? Yeah, I mean, uh, you would think. Here I go thinking again. <laughs> that their forensic uh, team, because this isn't anything that we found in any of the the documentation, mm-hmm. the forensic team would have been able to see if things were done. Because it's really hard to hide those kinds of tracks. You would have right. had to use another computer. And, and, and that's where it's kind of like, well, did he have another PC and somewhere? just didn't say he had one. Yeah. Exactly. Or did he have a girlfriend we didn't know about and used her computer? I don't uh-huh. know. I think we would have known There's by now. There's a lot though. of... <laughs> <laughs> that, though, I think, I don't know, most most people end up coming out of the woodwork later when they right. have a failed relationship. So, In the divorce, Lisa claimed that Craig was unnecessarily relentless, cruel, inconsiderate, domineering, and verbally abusive. Oof. The morning of her disappearance, she sent a petition to her lawyer to have Craig removed from the house. I again think about him sleeping in the master bedroom and Lisa sleeping on the couch. If the divorce was amicable and she was going to retain the house, why wasn't Craig the one on the couch? The lawyer did not receive the signed copy until after she went missing. The petition stated that Craig was cruel, inconsiderate, domineering, and verbally abusive. Yep. Well, just keep saying that because you're like, "Mm mm-hmm. Yeah. That and the couch. <laughs> Again, <laughs> power struggle. Big power struggle, and he wanted to win. Many friends state that Lisa was afraid of Craig and that Craig would demean her in public. Craig has stated that he thinks someone picked her up for her exercise session. It is known that she was looking for a female companion to work out with. May 9th, Craig seeks temporary full custody of the children. He claims he doesn't want Lisa to come back and take the children. His lawyer stated that Lisa had abandoned the family. This request was denied. Missing doesn't mean you're abandoning your family. Correct. (laughs) And I also kind of wonder if this isn't him trying to make himself look better. I don't know. Craig never searches for her or lets the kids get involved in the search for her. He also keeps the kids away from Lisa's family. Control. 
Sorry. (laughs) May 10th, a nearby lake was searched as well as a family cabin. May 14th, midnight search of the Stebbick home. Both vehicles were confiscated as well as pillows, blankets, etc. May 19th, Lisa's family celebrates her birthday. Craig and the kids were absent. Blood was found on a tarp in the trunk. Craig stated that he thinks it's from a deer. Results, it was Lisa's blood. It was not a large amount of blood, but uh, the judge then issues another search warrant. Judge denies Craig full custody of the kids. And June 8th, cadaver, cadaver dogs did search the house. An unnamed source did indicate that the dogs made a positive hit on something. July 2007, police wanted to have the kids interviewed by the Will County uh, Children's Advocacy (laughs) Center. Craig's lawyer stated that it's not Craig denying this request, it's him, that if the police wanted to provide a list of questions, they will respond. Again, control. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's so much about this that just reads controlling, wanting to be able to own. I mean, of course you want to own the narrative when somebody goes missing, but yeah. Anyhow. (laughs) July 6th, then former NBC5 reporter Amy Jacobson accepted an invitation to speak with Craig Stebbick and swim with him and his kids at the Stebbick's backyard pool. A competing news channel broke the story Adding another round of attention-getting headlines to an already heavily covered case, Miss Jacobson was invited over by Craig's sister. Miss Jacobson later left her job due to the scandal that this created. Um, I saw one article that they dated for a brief period, but I can't find anything that... Substantive, yeah. yeah. Um, July 19th, 2007, judge throughout the divorce case, Judge Joseph... Polito dismissed the case. The divorce proceedings days after Craig Stebbick was named a person of interest in the case of his missing wife. Craig's attorney had filed a motion to have the case closed. Reading this article, it sounds like that means they are divorced, but I'm not sure. I I couldn't. Yeah, I. Again, it's it's some of the legal ease and how they decide. It, it either means they are truly divorced or there's no divorce because they've determined she's dead. Yeah. Um, at some point after Craig became a person of interest, police had cameras installed that pointed at the front door of his house as well as the backyard of the house. Yeah, but that's like months later. Yep. April 2008, (sighs) Craig petitioned to get his vehicles back. They allowed him to get the 2004 Saturn Iron, Lisa's car that was only in Craig's name. Both he, but he was not able to get his truck back. In a search warrant, the police took both vehicles, the other vehicle, a 2002 Chevy S10 truck, 24 firearms. Uh, Again, when they were having financial issues, we don't know where all of them came from, how recent any of them had been purchased, how much, if any, he had spent on ammunition. Yeah. But again, 24... Yeah, it's kind of like, it's funny when you watch some news things, they'll like talk about the arsenal of stuff they found in somebody's home and they'll see a far fewer than 24. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, it just, again, we're, we're talking about controlling here and both cars were only in his name. Again. Know. Well, and, and you can see where if you were the woman and he was your husband, the gaslighting that would go along with the, well, why can't I have my name? Well, I'm the one who makes all the money, so I'm going to get the loan or mm-hmm. we only got this loan because of me and your credit sucks or something. I don't know. In November of 2007, Lisa's parents and grandparents petitioned to have Uh, counselor appointed visits with the children. Craig said that they could have supervised visitations with him being the supervisor. (laughs) I'm sorry. Here we go again. Control. (laughs) The case was settled in 2008 in a compromise that was sealed in court documents. But in a 2017 article, Lisa's cousin states that the family has had no contact with the children in years. Lisa's family cited that Craig had threatened Lisa. She told them that he told her he would cut her into pieces and no one would ever find her. And her face would be on the back of a milk carton someday. 
Lisa's cousin stated that Craig complained about the posters and signs being so prolific in the area that it was upsetting their children. The fact they don't have their mother anymore is probably what's upsetting your children, you jerk. Sorry. (laughs) And it's another red flag to me because he's not interested in finding her. And, you know, for the the children's sake, you'd think he would be more supportive. You would expect that. There we go. Expecting things of somebody who definitely doesn't have the same moral compass as ours. Um, Lisa's cell phone was never able to be pinged, but her cell phone was one of those that you had to add minutes on. This is what Craig allowed her to have. Another red flag. Yep. Because I'm sure she could only use her own money to add minutes and stuff like that. We've never known any... I did see something where, you know, he would only give her enough money for a few minutes. It It wasn't a lot of minutes that she was able to keep. Well, why would she need any more? She can, you can always make an emergency call. <laughs> Sorry. There I go again. There were massive searches, billboards, hotlines, rewards, television appearances, but no trace of Lisa has ever been found. October 28th, 2007, Stacy Peterson goes missing. May have heard of her. Yes. For a while, the families searched for the women together, but Stacy's disappearance overtook it, the media. Lisa's family watched as tips and leads dwindled in their case and resources were diverted to the other high-profile cases, especially Stacy Peterson's disappearance. It wasn't just the... Ac- sucking the oxygen it was sucking the money out of the room because i felt like will county only had so much money to spend on prosecution and literally only so many hours in the day these prosecutors can devote lisa's cousin stated yeah which is very true but you know it just kind of it, most people have heard of um the stacy yeah well it wasn't scott peterson other peterson yeah um, brain why can't i think of drew. his name drew that's it drew, drew peterson. peterson and he was very charismatic and he was also a cop yeah so. and he put on shows for the news mm-hmm. i just remember his antics he was something else but so. and it sounds like so was craig <laughs> yeah well apparently they it was like six months or so later that Stacy Peterson went missing. Mm-hmm. So for a while there, I do remember watching something on Stacy Peterson where they just ever so slightly talk about the Stibbett case. And yeah, they go, Oh yeah. For a while they were one of the, the um, locations that they looked, they like drained a lake yeah. or something. Yeah. And they thought there was a period period of time because they really weren't that far apart from each other. Right that they thought maybe the same person got them both. Right. And they actually, I think for a while there, they thought, it it was like they thought it was either one of the husbands (laughs) or the other one. (laughs) And you never really know for sure, but... Yeah. Because neither has been been found. found. Yeah, I did some, and this was, there were a couple things I was thinking about looking and adding on to, like, when did we start putting faces on milk cartons? And that didn't go very far. And I was like, okay, so... How many cold missing persons cases are there? So, um, which actually turned more into how many cold cases go unsolved. Um, And experts estimate that uh, based on UCR data, and I forgot to spell that out. Sorry, I had it before. Our nation currently has 250,000 unsolved murders, a number that increases by about 6,000 each year. Unsolved cases mean mounting caseloads which drain resources and result in higher costs for agencies with limited budgets but here's where um, the name us program comes in it's a national information clearinghouse and resource center for missing unidentified and unclaimed person cases across the united states it's funded and administered by the national institute of justice and managed through a contract with rti international which is the research triangle institute um, all NamUs resources are provided at no cost to law enforcement, medical examiners, coroners, allied front forensic professionals, and family members of missing persons. So this uh, Research Triangle Institute, trading as RTI International, is a nonprofit headquartered in the Research Triangle Park in North Carolina. So it provides research and tech services. Hmm. So I thought that was a pretty interesting. I actually looked up... Um, 
Lisa's name in it, found her case number and everything. They say that over 600,000 individuals go missing in the United States every year. Fortunately, many missing children and adults are quickly found alive and well. However, tens of thousands of individuals remain missing for more than one year, what many agencies consider cold cases. It is estimated that 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered every year with approximately a thousand of those remaining unidentified after one year. Wow. So that's actually a pretty big chunk. That's a quarter of them almost. Yeah. Um, I found a number of different resources linked from an Illinois missing persons page. The name us provides a user with a variety of resources, including the ability to print missing persons posters, receive fee free biometric collection and testing assistance for the supporting criminal justice agency other resources linked to state clearing houses, medical examiner coroner offices, law enforcement agencies, victim assistance groups, and pertinent le- legislation. Yeah, Lisa's information, she's NamUs MP4027. Um, I actually looked up IllinoisMissing.org. They have an alphabetical list, but they don't number them. Hmm. It was a lot. I bet. <laughs> I scrolled for a while and went, I'm not going to be able to... And yeah, <laughs> I'm sure I could write a quick script and come up with the numbers, but my brain doesn't work that fast. Anyhow, it was a lot. And it stretches back to 1930 even. Wow. So um, I was like, okay, so how many missing persons are found alive? The vast majority of people who are found or return within 24 hours. That's why you always hear that the first 24 hours mm-hmm. are critical for missing people. of missing children and 75% of missing adults return within the 24 hours. Only a small portion of people will be missing for more than a week. 2% of children and 5% of adults. Um, So I was like, are there any statistics that show what percentage of missing people found went off the grid, committed suicide, or murdered? You know, trying to get all those other questions. Um, I actually came up with uh, a Quora.com answer came came out of it, a performance answer analyst named Rachel Bateman answered this question about three years ago. She has about 1.8 thousand answers and 5.8 million answer views. So somebody who's kind of prolific on the Quora page. Um, So what she actually originally answered is, are there any statistics that show the percentage of missing people who went off the grid, committed suicide, or were murdered? And I had just asked um, any percentage, is there any statistics about how many missing people remain missing for that amount of time how many are missing now that's why i was just just kept asking questions so the stats are almost impossible to portray accurately as part of our answer Um, you can only give these stats if the missing person has been located and has either been murdered committed suicide or has told us they've been living off the grid while they were living Hmm. missing and but then they're not missing anymore. Now, are they? Right. So sometimes, and quite often, in fact, people lie about where they have been, who mm-hmm. they have been with, and what was happening while they were missing if they're found alive. So the impossible statistics are for those missing and not located. There may be evidence suggests that they've been kidnapped, murdered, but until they're located, that can't be confirmed. Especially, like, you remember they found the blood, but they didn't find a substantial amount of it. If they had found enough blood to consider this, there's no way or very little ability for her to live through it. Right. They probably would have uh, counted her dead right then. Right. But not enough to be considered dead, so... (sighs) It's like, you can can only figure out how long they've been missing, and uh, it might be vaguely possible, but probably inaccurate sometimes difficult to pinpoint the length of time missing because of the de- definitions around what the time missing is. We have the proposed timeline that came completely from her husband. So mm-hmm. you don't know exactly when she went away. She was first missed the next morning. Right. Whatever. <laughs> so you can play around with some the semantics of um, how long that is. It's less important when you're talking about months or years because you're like, okay, it was this day. Right. One of the earliest long-term missing persons on record was with this person's local police force dated back to the 70s. Hmm. That's over 40 years with no person located. Now, it's highly likely that person is dead, mm-hmm. maybe murdered, but we have all seen cases on the news of people being falsely imprisoned for decades, then being found alive. 
um, this person's sister had also disappeared by choice for around 10 years, or this person's friend's sister, before suddenly turning up exactly when she wanted to. Nobody knew if she was alive or dead during that time, but in some statistics, nobody's going to tell you that person is dead. They may be, they may say presumed dead, <laughs> but murdered or fallen down a remote hole that nobody has discovered yet? No idea. Until they're found. <laughs> Kind of like there's plenty of you, know, you mentioned the Michigan and those mines, right? You can't find all of them. You don't know where they are. They weren't they weren't well planned out. It's not like finding a city planner's map and finding all the mines. Yeah. Um, you therefore can't say for certainty that that person is dead or if they're still missing, unless you have an admission of guilt. <laughs> so, like the Moors murders, where those so those children's bodies still not located but known to be buried on the Moors. But what if they're being kept in a basement as a sex slave, like the Fritzl case over in Austria, the guy that kept his own daughter locked up for 24 years? Um, so long-term missing persons cases are therefore routinely revisited over and over. What you can say is they're missing presumed dead, but you cannot give stats on something that's invisible. So anyhow, that's a lot of this person just goes on and on but it's like do you know did that person go away on purpose did they commit suicide there's a lot of what ifs in any of these cases i think yeah and it is a fascinating subject area when it comes to the data and the stats but it's not black and white until you actually find the person yeah so and even when you find them you might go okay they're dead but is this because did they fall down a well or were they pushed and if it's been too long you're not going to be able to put Mm -hmm. together enough information but anyhow um the fbi released a 2019 missing person stats um the national crime information center and cic recently released its 2019 missing person and unidentified person statistics as of december 31st 2019 they had nearly 87,500 active missing person records. Wow. Youth under the age of 18 accounted for 35% of the records. 44% of the missing persons were people under 21. So that means 56% are adults. Wow. Um, Missing person records are retained indefinitely unless a missing individual is located or the reporting agency cancels the entry. During 2019, law enforcement agencies across the county entered more than 609,000 missing person records. During that time period, the reporting agency canceled more than 607,000. Those are the people that returned Okay. within those 24 hours. Huh. So, Interesting. Hey, I'm like, I could really go on and on, <laughs> apparently, about missing persons. Well, there is a lot going There's on there. Yeah, and you you just really want these people to be brought home, brought to justice. Right. So back to the case, uh, Will County Assistant State's Attorney Michael Fitzgerald, head of the office's felony division, happened to be working late the night Lisa Stubick was reported missing and helped police with legal research. He's been chasing the case ever since, but her case was only the first wave, he said. About six weeks after Stebbick disappeared, Christopher Vaughn killed his wife and three children on a a frontage road near Chanahan. I guess so. I don't know that place. I don't either. In October, Boilingbrook resident Stacy Peterson disappeared. In February 2008, five women were shot and killed and a sixth was injured at the Lane Bryant Outlet Store in Tinley Park. Lisa Stebbick's disappearance in May of 2007 touched off of a time period unlike anything we've seen in Will County, Fitzgerald said. We had to dedicate a lot of resources to each of those cases as they unfolded, and I think we were able to do that. We had an all-hands-on-deck mentality. I was working in the investigations that day, and the original officer that took the report came into our office and advised us. We have this case. I think you guys need to start looking into it, said the Plainfield Police Detective Carrie Ann Siegel. Detective Siegel says that this case struck her as different. It was odd, but that's the biggest thing. Why would a mom just leave her kids? Uh The Stebbick case quickly grabbed headlines. Media outlets reported continuous updates about new searches and new clues. 
Her friends, her neighbors, her co-workers at the school, everyone wanted to help. However, with the search came speculation. Was this a case of foul play? Lisa's family pointed to Craig. To this day, he's the only named person of interest in her disappearance. And the only person who didn't seem to want to try to find her. Yes. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I don't know exactly what happened to Lisa. That's part of the pain of our family. And what is so devastating is that we don't have those answers. What happened in those last hours, said Greenberg. That's her cousin, too. Is kind of the family spokesperson throughout. Right. All this. A dozen years later, Drew is behind bar. Uh, that's Drew, Drew Peterson. Peterson. But Lisa's case is still open. Police insist the search for the mother of two is not over. This case is still one of our priority cases, said De- Detective Siegel. It is an open case. We're closer than we were day one. I will tell you that, said Plainfield Police Chief John Kopanek. But for now, police say they'll keep working with the FBI and with the Will County Major Crimes Task Force to bring the family much-needed closure. What we're holding out hopes for is justice, said Greenberg. I'm hoping the police are still tracking his whereabouts and keeping an eye on Craig, because you never know, something could crack. My gut as a police officer tells me that there's absolutely somebody out there that knows exactly what happened to Lisa, said Chief Kopanek, and we still consider Craig a person of interest. So in December in December of 2011, um, uh, actually December 22nd, Davey, who is Craig's lawyer, filed a petition asking for payment of $10,000 and some odd change change in fees and filed a motion to withdraw as Craig Stebbick's attorney. In September 13th of 2011, Craig Stebbick's sister sued CBS. Uh, Jill and Robert Webb, who are citizens of Iowa, were present with their minor children at the Plainfield, Illinois home of Jill Webb's brother, Craig Stebbick. On July 6, 2007, CBS is a corporation that owns and operates Chicago television station WBBM. Tracy Reardon is Craig Stebbick's neighbor. At some point in July 2007, local police authorities named Craig Stebbick as a person of interest in their investigation of his wife's disappearance. Prior to July 6, 2007, law enforcement authorities closely monitored the Stebbick's house by placing two video cameras on utility poles focused on the Stebbick's house and backyard and recorded activities in the area. Also, prior to July 6, 2007, numerous news organizations dispatched reporters and videographers to the Stebbick's home to record activities taking place there. One such reporter, who was working for Chicago's NBC station, WMAQ, Amy Jacobson, personally made efforts to find out what happened to Lisa Stebbick and quickly established a report with Jill and Robert Webb. Indeed, prior to July 6, 2007, Jacobson had spoken with Craig Stebbick and Jill Webb and had been to the Stebbick's home. Jill Webb and Craig Stebbick together telephoned Jacobson and invited her to visit the Stebbick's home on Friday, July 6, 2007. Jacobson, who testified that she had otherwise planned to take her children to a community swimming pool, The morning of July 6, 2007, instead took her children to the Stebbick's house, where she and her children, the Webbs and their children, and Craig Stebbick proceeded to interact in and around the swimming pool in the Stebbick's backyard. Jill Webb invited Jacobson to the Stebbick's house for professional reasons, namely the Webbs and Craig Stebbick wanted to discuss Lisa Stebbick's disappearance, and Jacobson Jacobson's investigation into it. Jacobson accepted their invitation and visited the Stebbick's house in her capacity as a television news reporter covering the story. A community search for Lisa Stebbick was planned for July 7, 2007. On July 6, 2007, Michael 
Cuccinelli, <laughs> a CBS reporter at Chicago television station WBBM, was assigned to prepare a news report on July 7, 2007 search. In the morning of July 6, 2007, Nathan DeLac, a CBS employee and videographer at WBBM, drove Puccinelli to Plainfield. Upon arriving in Plainfield, Puccinelli, who hoped to invite interview a Stubbick family member about the next day's community search for Lisa Stubbick rang the bell at the Stubbick's front door, but Robert Webb told him that the family did not wish to speak to him. After Robert Webb turned Puccinelli away from the Stubbick house, Delac and Puccinelli drove around the corner to the home occupied by Reardon and William Alstrom, to whom Puccinelli had previously spoke. Alstrom invited Puccinelli into the house to talk. Puccinelli testified that from the Reardon's home, he could see that people were gathered in the Stubbick's backyard. Puccinelli further testified that he was surprised to see that Craig Stubbick had guests at his house the day before the search for his wife. Yeah, I would be kind of like, excuse me, you're having a party? Yeah. Therefore... Puccinelli asked Dilak to videotape the events in the Stavik's backyard because he thought the events were newsworthy. Makes sense. Alstrom then gave Dilak and Puccinelli permission to bring the video camera, which had a zoom function, into the Alstrom Reardon home and set up camera in front of one of the kitchen windows on the first floor. In the subsequent videotape, Craig Stebbick, Jacobson, and the Webbs and the children are seen around the Stebbick's swimming pool, as well as passing through a sliding glass door between the house and the pool deck. CBS aired an edited version of the videotape on a CBS broadcast on July 10, 2007. Although the uh, Jill Webb and, and her Family, husband yeah. um, contacted CBS explaining that she was upset about the broadcast of the videotape. They failed to present any evidence that CBS's com- conduct in the videotaping of them in Craig Stubbick's backyard caused them distress that was so, fear- so severe that no reasonable person could expect to endure it. Although even... Although... Even though, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> you can do Puccinelli's work. and Delac's conduct in v- videotaping Craig Stebbick and his guests at the Stebbick's pool wasn't unwelcome, this conduct is not so outrageous that it goes beyond all possible bounds of decency, especially in light of the fact that the police had the Stebbick house and backyard under 24-hour so- surveillance as well. Um, so basically... She want they wanted to they get wanted to get out paid, of yeah the CBS uh, yeah. video since um since they were upset that they were videotaped and um Miss Jacobson was seen in a bikini that definitely raised some eyes to and she lost her she yeah, she she left her job because yeah. of the scandal we talked about that before because really I mean what it's just poor taste mm-hmm. and you know what you gotta be able to be ready for the consequences when you do something in poor taste going and having a frolicking around like a party <laughs> yeah the day before searching for the missing wife. wife and okay the reporter comes over in a bikini yeah uh, it definitely i mean i i Party goes, okay, I see. You're still going to, ha- the kids are still going to play in the pool. Right. You guys can have adult conversations while the kids are playing in the pool. But it, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't look good. It and, doesn't. Um, not only did uh, Craig's um, sister and brother in law file, um, so did Amy Jacobson. Right. So they were all I think trying to. She lost to her say, job over it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, you, you got to think about the next steps. I mean, exactly. If once you get to a certain age, especially, I mean, when you're younger, we, we tend to do a lot of dumber things when we're young. But it's like, come on. <laughs> think of the optics. I will say, though, <laughs> apparently there is a Law & Order episode out there that was based on this. So. Yeah. Actually, well, the, the Law & Order episode was slightly different. But yeah. Well, yeah. But it, yeah, it was the uh, one with the dogs, actually. Yeah. Um, so here, I remember the episode because I'm a law and order freak. <laughs> so here are the theories of what happened to Lisa. 
Um, the first one, she disappeared of her own volition. This obviously doesn't seem right. Um, nobody believes she would leave her kids. And why and would she have signed and sent that petition to have him removed, removed from the house if she that day? Yeah, if she was planning to leave. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. I do know some domestic violence groups will help women disappear from a bad situation, but her leaving without her kids does not make sense. If they were adults, maybe, but still doubtful. Yeah. At the end of the day, very few, very rarely does a, a woman leave her children. Yes. Um, second theory is that someone kidnapped her however no ransom was ever received nothing to indicate this her purse was not found her credit cards have not been used seems very unlikely um an accident well you know um the area she lived in (laughs) lived worked very well searched both she for for both her and for stacy peterson i mean that area they have done so much looking for both of those ladies yeah So. so that's very unlikely and for foul play that is the most likely um you know what happened to her uh was it craig well you know many details of their lives do show he was very controlling you know the cars being in his name only the cell phone being one that you had to add minutes to him sleeping in the master bedroom when she was gonna get the house he obviously didn't want to give her alimony he had no involvement involvement in searching for her and then things and friends and family had stated about him and their relationship. That doesn't make necessarily make him a murderer, but if not Craig, then who? Uh, police haven't pointed to any other suspects unless they are keeping that info to themselves, but it's been 17 years since she disappeared. So you do have to wonder if she will ever get justice. And some other questions now. Her children are now in their 20s. Do they know anything? Have they been so manipulated over the years by Craig that they either believe she left of her own volition or turned them against Lisa and her family? You know, are Lisa's children still estranged from the family? And yeah. if so, that's really sad. I mean, as of 2017, that yeah. one article, that's that was what the um, cousin had opined. So yeah. chances are probably because, again, if... if we already see signs of controlling and my big guess is he poisoned their minds with um, yeah yeah she left us mm-hmm. she left you and your and their family is they blame me so they're awful right and you can take it to whatever nth degree but i think right. that would be the basics yeah and if they did know anything they probably either are too afraid or they've just, they've been told so many other stories through the years, they just don't remember it clearly anymore. Very true. It's weird how trauma can definitely... Yeah, we've we've had some discussions <sighs> lately about trauma and how different um, things set off memories that you're just like, oh my gosh, either you don't remember it at all, mm-hmm. the memory that pops up, or it's a memory that just, ha- you like, wow, it's, it's so clear to me and I haven't even thought about that for... You know, once you've been around on the planet for four or so decades, <laughs> it's like, really? God, that was like three decades ago. How do I remember this so clearly? Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow. So if anyone out there listening has information on the whereabouts of Lisa Stubbick, call, please call the Plainfield PD at one 8154397653 one I really do hope she is found yeah. someday and that is, you know, gives her family some peace. That right. would and there's, be good. There's so many other resources too. If you can't remember the Plainfield PD, yeah. if you just remember the name, um, that whole discussion of the the name you or geez, I can't remember and I just was <laughs> talking about it. Who can do this? Um, but anyhow, yeah, yeah name us. Yeah, even if you just search Lisa Illinois missing. (laughs) Yeah, there's there's plenty of of ways to to find and you know tell people what 
Because yeah, that know. name us site, if there's anybody that you know of that's missing and mm-hmm. you have any information, put their name into the name us site and you just, it has this big long form where, okay, what kind of information do you need? Here's the local um, FBI or like the Illinois Bureau of Investigation mm-hmm. that this is the officer that maintains this case. Same thing with the local police. So yeah. and there's a lot of information there. So if you happen to know something about a missing person... Please. please yeah please because having a family. family yeah exactly so thank you for listening to nothing, nothing happens, happens in a small town. town where things do happen and small towns are not the quiet quaint places you think they are and you can uh, go to our patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town Instagram, you can find us at Nothing Nothing Happens in a Small Town. Town. Twitter is Nothing Happens in a Small Town at N-H-I-A-S-T. Or Facebook page is Nothing Nothing Happens in a Small Town Town at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. And if you would like to Gmail us a uh, suggestion, because obviously we do actually play with the suggestions do them, yeah. because well they're interesting we, they are. we have plenty of other things we think about on the side yes but it's really fun to delve into something that maybe we haven't thought of exactly or ever heard of so that is nothing happens in, in a small, small town, town at gmail.com thank you for listening bye bye